Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. As you probably know, I tend to shy away from Noble Blood episodes featuring modern figures, not least of all because my aim is usually to uncover stories that haven't been told yet. But Princess Diana is a figure that looms so large in her collective consciousness, defining people's understanding of what it means to be a princess. It seems to me that in some ways, the tragedy of her story emerged at the tension between the modern and the traditional. Here was a woman very much of the 90s, trapped in an archaic institution. And here was a global population with a very traditional obsession with the monarchy, with youth, with beauty, with power, but now armed with modern tools, cameras and helicopters and motorcycles. The myth of Diana looms so large, especially in the wake of her death and the conspiracy theories that surrounded her, that for me, actually getting an understanding of the woman beneath it all was daunting. And so today I've enlisted the help of the brilliant Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall to join me. They're the hosts of the podcast You're Wrong About, and they did a phenomenal five-part series on Princess Diana, and I am so excited to be with them here today. Sarah and Michael, hi. Hi. <laughs> hi, Dana. Hi, Dana. So Thank you so here. much for being here. Thank Dana, you. you're very good at this. That was like more insightful than anything we said on our show. That's <laughs> no, not true. Oh, Dana's making some good points. The, Mike's comments do not <laughs> reflect my beliefs, but I do. <laughs> Sarah doesn't think I was insightful at all. I yes. thought that we. I think that we're equally insightful, and that I can compliment you without chipping away at my own work, um, <laughs> which is what I intend to do. But, uh, well, no, that was beautiful, though. Thank, thank you. you. I I think that you were so insightful. And I listened to your five-part series that I immediately had to invite you on the show to to do a Noble Blood crossover. For me, it was it's challenging because usually I work with the historical record and like with media. And with Diana, media itself seems like a like a character in the story. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. there's like overwhelmingly too many facts and too much information as opposed to like, well, this is her hairbrush and this is what we think she looked like. It's also such an honor for you to ask us on because I hope people know that you're our royal correspondent. And yes. you have talked on our show about Marie Antoinette and Princess Anastasia. Um, and is Princess Anastasia correct? Yeah, she's a... She's okay, a, see, yeah. I'm already tripping up a little bit here. Um, but anyway, you have been our royal correspondent for a while now. And those, are, I think, are some of our best episodes, or at least my favorite that we've done. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, this is this is just lovely. Well, I'm so honored to then have you back to return the favor on Diana, who, especially I think with the resurgence of the crown, has sort of reemerged mm-hmm. in the in the public consciousness as like a fashion icon. I see influencers now in bike shorts and sweatshirts. Mm-hmm. I think she's really come back into vogue. <laughs> what what 
Do you sort of ascribe all that to the crown or do you think there's another factor in sort of the public interest in Diana reemerging? Mike? Oh, I was going to have you you take this one. You're our, okay. you're our maligned woman correspondent. All so. right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that the crown, the same way maybe that the people versus O.J. Simpson did, gave people a point of entry into the life of someone that they were willing to reassess or assess for the first time if they're Zoomers. So I feel like this is, you know, Princess Diana died in 1997, and so we now have a generation of young adults who either have no living memory of her or were born after her death. And so inevitably, at some point, people in that age group, I think, want to learn about what was happening right as they were entering the world, and then also learning how previous generations of media mishandled stories. I mean, I don't know. For me, that was a coming-of-age thing. Michael, what about you? When did your sort of when did you uh, um, come online in terms of understanding Princess Diana's story? Uh, about three months ago when I started researching <laughs> the series. I I mean, a lot of the feedback that we've gotten from people are like, you know, I, I liked the series in spite of the fact that I have no particular interest in the British royal family. Huh. And I think that's like where me and Sarah came to it from. Like neither one of us are particularly like into – the British royal family or I mean, into I'm also royalty into in general. royal history, but like I really have never like when William and um what's her face? Kate, I <laughs> guess. See, when they got married, I knew people who got up at one in the morning to watch it. And I was like, I'm yeah. gonna read about it on insideedition.com the next day. Cause I'm interested yeah. and I wanna see the outfit and the pictures and everything, but like I'm not invested. Like I'm invested in the tutors, but you know, being invested in people who are living their lives in front of you right now seems weird and it'll break your heart. Something that I kind of thought, because I'm sort of on the periphery of that, of like, really, I am interested in the British royal family just sort of as a power structure and like yeah. the oh, historical yeah. legacy of that. Yeah. But I found that Americans who woke up at like one in the morning to watch that, it was sort of like they wanted the pageantry of like an excuse to get dressed up and eat scones mm-hmm. like they used the british royal family as mascots as like like derby uh, day or something yeah like it was just like a big which i think then speaks to the larger picture where they're more symbols than people it's like they are an yeah. excuse to like play fancy british which is a very fun thing to do right yeah. and speculate on on someone having or perhaps not having a baby and then what kind of baby? And then when will we see the baby? <laughs> a good or a bad so baby. Weird. A good or a bad yeah. baby. What will the baby <laughs> be wearing? How is the baby looking? And it's like, look at your own babies. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very much that they become mascots, at least to me, like modern living day mascots more than people. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's kind of what makes it such an exploitative system. I mean, Mm. as we talked about in the show, there are a million reasons, economic, political reasons to get rid of the royal family, which like everyone kind of knows those arguments and they know the counter arguments and you can play that debate out. But to me, one of the most compelling reasons why the royal family is bad is just that it's a massive human rights violation to make Mm. people be in this system. Mm -hmm. And Diana is an interesting sort of vessel for that argument because she wasn't part of the system and then she gets sucked in and you see all of she these absurd in. injustices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it in a seems, lorry on a lift. Yes. <laughs> and it seems to me that Diana was very bad at being the quiet, uh, non-speaking mascot side of 
uh, of being a royal because her sort of personhood kept jumping out. Yes, exactly. That she understood the needs and the nature of modern celebrity in a way that the royal family, because as Tina Brown talks about in her book, they basically have these social mores of Britain 30, 40 years ago. Like whatever Britain was doing 30, 40 years ago, that is like their table manners. That is their etiquette for dinner table conversation. Everything is a couple decades old. And Diana came in, I mean, she grew up in a reasonably, she grew up in a royal adjacent household. So it's not like she was some complete common folk, but she would at least had something resembling the modern mores of British society in the 1980s. She, she rode the tube, right? Like she cooked, yeah, like, she did dishes. Yeah, like she knew what actual life was. The juxtaposition of what she understood celebrity to be and the kinds of celebrities that they thought they were is what makes the story so fascinating and mm -hmm. also so sort of comical that over and over again, Princess Diana is just like, you people are acting insane. What are you <laughs> doing? And because everybody around her is either in the royal family or these sort of footmen of the royal family, like part of that system, they're constantly just like gaslighting her. Like, why would you want to go visit an AIDS ward? Why are you doing this? And she's like, uh, because I'm a good person. <laughs> like, why what, am I getting yelled at? What for is this? the reason? And there's a story where she was rushing to see a friend who was dying of AIDS at the time. Yes. And they were like, you can't leave because blah, blah, royal protocol. Oh, yeah. You what don't leave Balmoral on a Saturday. Yeah. And it's like, you, you <sighs> mustn't leave and you must curtsy to the queen seven times and then face west and curtsy 12 more times or what? Like, there was this weird protocol. Yeah. And they're mad at her that she left to go literally see her friend on his day deathbed. And it's one of those things where you just, you can very easily put yourself into her shoes and be like, why am I getting yelled at for this? This is outrageous. Mm -hmm. So here's my hypothetical question and not, I'm not on the side of anyone in this. I mean, I'm on Diana's side because I think I, that she's a normal human being. Yes. But Queen Elizabeth's sort of like non-personhood has led like longevity for the, for the 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 crown you don't mm -hmm. shine bright you shine for a long time yes. you just you you can't be a flare because flares then go down you just have to mm -hmm. sort of stay at the medium level this whole time is there something to be said for this idea that like if princess diana had lived that people would have turned against her just because mm. figures who are not volatile but just exist at all, like women who exist in any capacity with a personality and with flaws, like the media eventually tears them down. Like, does the does the crown know sort of that in order to survive this long, you just have to do nothing, basically? I mean, she she would have carried on aging. So, yeah. yes. Um, I also like that you describe Queen Elizabeth's career as like the oil at Hanukkah. Yeah, I think that I really do think that is sort of what the role is, yeah. is to do. Say as little as possible yeah. and just continue on as like a, a steady beacon. Yeah, Yeah, and that, well, and that also reminds me of um, speaking of the only way to age gracefully or the only way to age in a way that the public accepts and doesn't get mad at you about. I think, uh, at least historically and probably now, you just have to do a, a Greta Garbo and disappear, right? Mm. You just don't exist. And then no one will yell at you for getting older or for getting older in the wrong way because every way is the wrong way. When Greta Garbo was in Queen Christina, there's a final shot where she's on this boat that's carrying her away from the man that she loved who's now dead and she's abdicated from the throne. And in real life, she was probably a lesbian, but who cares? And 
you know, she's going toward her destiny and the direction that she got for how to play the scene was like, just have your face be completely blank. Just think of nothing. Try to emote nothing because then people will project shit onto you and it'll be perfect. Mm. <laughs> and that's what that ending shot is. And I feel as if that applies to the career of Queen Elizabeth, both as a female celebrity and as a ruler with a kind of power. But I'm curious about the nature of her power. And I would love to hear about what kind of power you think she had throughout her career and also as a public figure during World War II as a pretty young person. Um, but I feel as if, yeah, if looking at her, that model seems to have worked, which is that you you do as little as possible and you also are as little as possible because the, the more people are seeing their own ideas of you when they look at you, the more merciful they will be, perhaps. I also think that if if you do anything and have a personality um, that is anything beyond like us weekly idiosyncrasies, people will be like, why the hell are we bowing and putting a, a crown on you, a human person? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. why am I bowing to a person? Yeah. You, I, I think Queen Elizabeth probably, probably understands how silly the whole institution of monarchy is. And if you act mm -hmm. quote unquote relatable like Diana did, it's like mm -hmm. a princess can't be relatable because why would people bow to just like the girl next door? It's like yeah. they're rumbling the entire thing if people realize that Diana and therefore the rest of them are people. Yeah. So I, I'm interested a little bit in um, going back and talking a little bit about her biographical uh, information. When I was a child, my only understanding of Diana was a purple beanie baby that, have, that came mm. out when she died. Mm -hmm. I had that too. Yeah. And... I always thought, just as a in my child head, like when that she was the people's princess, that she was a commoner. But Me she too. Wasn't. Yes. Yeah. I totally thought people's princess. Like she must be reasonably normal person, and she met Charles. Like maybe they went to college together, and they bumped into each other at the quad or something. Like that was she the was, sort of narrative that I constructed in my head. She was working at like a charming Notting Hill bookstore. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been great. So, Michael, who was she? <laughs> but no, I mean. She grew up like the royal family was her next door neighbor growing up. And because they're on these country estates, next door neighbor means they live like miles away because they both have these like massive estates with like deer that they're hunting running around. But she <laughs> went over to their house. She – they would come over to her house for various things. They were sort of in each other's orbit. Her great aunt – was this sort of scheming royalist person who was, like, trying to arrange these marriages. Like, she was very much a part of the royal system. And her dad was the earl of something. And – oh, wait. um, And her dad was the Earl Spencer, not mm. the Earl of Spencer, which is important for some reason. Yeah, Earl of and Spencer's fancier. Yes, mm. or something. Yes. And so she grew up in this royal system. And she actually – one of the only – commonalities that she ever had with Prince Charles, like one of the only things that would have helped them get along is that they both had these very similar childhoods where they had all this material wealth. You know, they had servants, they had amazing meals, they had horseback riding lessons, et cetera, but just they were completely emotionally bereft that mm. both of them had these parents that were absent and obsessed with protocol. Princess Diana's father would eat by himself in his sort of study and then the kids would kind of scrounge for food in the kitchen. And it's just – you read this stuff and you're like, why? <laughs> like, why not just be with your kids for the night? 
But like that wasn't done, especially if you're a man and he's like Mike, a single father at that point. parenting is for commoners. <laughs> yeah. And so she's kind of raised by these random nannies who keep quitting because she's like really shitty to them. <laughs> so they keep leaving and it's like Because she's young worried women. they're going to jump in the sack with her dad, right? Yes. And so she has this sort of rotating string of, you know, women in their early 20s who don't last that long. Her mom is living in London. They sort of go off to visit her mom after they get divorced. And this is like the closest thing to normalcy that she has. But she really has this like very emotionally empty upbringing. And this is something that like you never really get over. Just the fact that your parents aren't really there in any meaningful sense for most of the time that you're growing up. Mm -hmm. And her parents being divorced, I think, is a factor that might have been in her mind as like, a possibility where I think maybe for Charles, that's just like not a thing that is done. Yeah. I mean, these people don't really exist in any sort of normal institutions. It's actually very strange for parents to get divorced and then the father to get custody. Yeah. So it's very odd that Princess Diana's father gets custody. But the reason is because he's the Earl Spencer something something, the courts are just like, oh, yeah, he's royal. He gets whatever he wants. Like, oh, Okay, like this is this is all the ways that this system cool. has these weird little tentacles in the sort of official justice system that her mom never really has a chance to get custody of Diana and her brother. That's a weird thing of the weird juxtaposition between modernity and this yes antiquated system that doesn't this really make sense. System yeah. that makes mm-hmm. no sense. And of course, the minute that he gets custody, he's like, "Okay, you're both now going off to boarding school." Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. I really want my kids. I want to take them away from my ex-wife, but I don't actually want to see them. So I'm going to send them off to boarding school. Well, he like, couldn't trust okay. her to send them to the right boarding school. I guess. I think you're being hard on this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I find it fascinating that Prince Charles actually dated Diana's older sister before he dated Diana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How long and involved was that relationship? This was like very much foreshadowing for what happens with him and Diana, that they they date, I believe it's a couple months, but the reason why he stops dating her sister is her sister talks to the press. She has this fateful lunch with a journalist where she's just like eating fries, hanging out, chatting. And it's just like a like, ski, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so she ends up telling this journalist, like, I don't know if we're ever going to get married. And I don't know, you know, I'm still kind of figuring it out. And, you know, I don't really care if he's the king of England or some janitor off the street. I'm not into him or whatever. And then the royal family reads this and they're like, did she just compare Prince Charles to a janitor? Oh, my God. And they're like livid. How dare she imply he would ever do a day's work in his life? (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) And so they completely cut her off. And so years go by before he sort of reconnects with Diana and then is like, oh, didn't I meet you once? Mm. But this is a sign of like how much the royal family keeps things Your sister had too much spirit. Yeah. But you look a little more (laughs) broken in, you know, when he's holding a crop. (laughs) To me, it's astonishing how young she was when they got together. Yeah. What was she, 19? 19 and he's 32. Gross. Oof. As someone who's 32 at this moment, that's weird. Can you imagine hanging out with a 19-year-old right now? I can't imagine marrying one, Mike. I can imagine oh hanging out with a 19-year-old, making them dinner, and gently slipping in life advice in a, in a covert <laughs> way. 
Uh, can I imagine having a relationship with one? No. Oh, my yeah. God. And I'm like, we're, we're just talking about the power differential of life experience and being, like, kind of more established and not being a member of the royal fucking family. I know. And there's also this thing. I mean, I always think about the fact that both of them in the weeks leading up to the wedding were crying and trying to back out of it. And it's basically just like telling Mark and Sophie on Peep Show. Sure. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, yeah, go on. <laughs> uh, I have not seen the show, so Sarah keeps bringing it up, and every time I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh, you should watch Peep you, Show. I it's really great. I really keep forgetting you haven't seen it. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, Sarah, I believe you. It's, it's one of four shows I've seen in my life, um, like all the way through. Dana? <laughs> I've seen it, and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of crying. And like at one point, the guy character who's getting married, Mike, he's like, just tries to get hit by a car. But he's like too passive to really start a fight. So the guy won't hit him with his car. He just swears at him. This is Charles. This right? is exactly Charles. I'll just give you a couple really episodes to watch. <laughs> yes. He doesn't really have the guts to truly back out of this. And he knows that this is his sort of country, royal, whatever, duty stuff. And so he kind of sleepwalks into this marriage. And also Diana sleepwalks into this marriage. And it's just like everyone around them sort of knows that it's a bad idea. But there's this idea of like, you know, it's it, it's what's done. Or one of the big things at the time is that if he doesn't marry Diana, it's like, well, there's nobody else. Like she's the last one because she has to be sort of royal adjacent. You know, she has to be sort of Lord whatever titled and she also has to be a virgin, which is outrageous. And she has to sort of look the part and sort of have this trophy-ish kind of personality. And literally part of the argument is like, there's no one else. There's no one left. He's dated everybody else. And everyone else, like Camilla, has like had sex and like seems to maybe enjoy sex with other human beings. And like she's obviously ineligible for this. So he has to marry this person who like he doesn't like that much and she doesn't like him. <laughs> so, how like, many let's women go. has he dated? Like how big of a pool – is this really? Like hundreds? My understanding is that there's two sort of theories of this. One is that he was kind of a playboy for mm-hmm. these years. You know, he's 32, right? So that's a lot mm-hmm. of years in which he can yeah. be dating people. And so mm-hmm. he has a lot of flings and there's sort of women getting payoffs and NDAs to sort of disappear into the night. There's this as a rumor, but then other sources will say that all of this playboy stuff was something that was deliberately constructed by the royal family to make him seem like an eligible bachelor. I don't and know. And he I wasn't think, actually doing this all loads that and loads of women would date Prince Charles and have flings with him, Mike. Well, that's like we we don't we don't know. So like I know. <laughs> I guess I think both theories are plausible cuz like yeah. it's hard to know how charismatic someone is unless you meet them when they're like 29 or whatever. Like we can't go back in time and know, but like it's yeah, I feel like it's a combination of like I I guess a lot of people would date the prince no matter what he looked like. Like there's only, you know, of oh, the yeah. whole country. My hypothesis, based on just uh, your interpretation and, and what I feel like, is both factors that he is not charismatic and not charming, but a playboy because people want to sleep with the future king of England. Mm-hmm. And he kind of knows it in the back of his mind. Yeah. I yeah. feel like he has this deep-seated insecurity of like, I know people kind of only like me because I'm the heir to the throne. But maybe also, you do know they're forced to like you, and maybe that's a kind of confidence. I don't oh. know. Mike, I'm sorry. Go on. No, that's the thing. I, I don't know to what extent these people know how artificial their lives are. Because if you've mm. grown up mm. your entire life in that system, Prince Charles has never had a friend who didn't know acutely 
that he was going to be the king one day, right? Yeah. So all of your relationships ever, every small talk conversation you've ever had in your entire life is with somebody who knows that you have more power than them or will in yeah. the future. And so there's nothing to compare it to, right? Like if, if any of us sort of got into the royal family and all of a sudden people were treating us differently, we would understand that as different. Mm -hmm. But he's just like, oh, I guess everyone just sucks up to you all the time and that's what being alive is. <laughs> like it's not yeah. even that they would have any idea that this is extremely strange. Well, it's like how the super rich in America, you know, we have the like affluenza defense, which I forget mm -hmm. what that is supposed to refer to. But I do think there's kind of, I don't know if it's insanity, but you're like, you are less connected to reality when you grow up extremely wealthy because like mm -hmm. the material world has fewer consequences. Your parents like whisk away problems and hide them from you Probably you can just mm -hmm. buy your way out of seemingly anything. And I do feel like you might just persist in the idea that the world is a soft play area until it's too oh, late. Yeah. yeah. You know what I always think of? I always think of Gwyneth Paltrow did that abysmal movie Shallow Howl, which oh. was a fat suit. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. one day the director made her walk around in yeah. a fat suit and sort of live as a fat person. And I remember thing, her talking about this on Oprah, like yes, it was on a social Oprah. experiment. Yeah. Yes. And the thing that she said on Oprah that I cannot get over is she's like, I would walk into a room and no one looked at me. No! <laughs> Oh, which God, is like <laughs> that's that's the experience of like not being a super hot blonde lady or you know a what I mean? celebrity like, at this point she's yes. been famous for years and years the daughter of Blythe Danner famous for her exactly. entire life yeah so it's like she just has no idea what it's like to walk into a room and no one really notices when you mm -hmm. walk into a room which is the experience of like 99.9% .9 of humanity every time you walk into a room but that's mm -hmm. never happened to her so that to me is fascinating that she just doesn't understand what the experience of a non-famous, non-hot, non-blonde person would be. And it's the I guess same she thing was with Charles. blonde still, but aside from every, yeah, everything else is different though. <laughs> <laughs> the, okay, so here's I also think like a question that like as a child I didn't qu couldn't quite wrap my head around. Princess Diana is beautiful and seems cool and fashionable and charismatic. Why doesn't Charles like her? You know, like, why he really seems to resent her and just, like, doesn't yeah. like her on, like, a fundamental person level. And yet everyone else fell in love with her. How did, what do you ascribe that disjoint to? I mean, I think so much of it is just they're just fundamentally mismatched as people. The age thing is part of it. And because of the age, I don't think he ever sort of understands the extent to which age plays into this. But mm -hmm. he always sees her as frivolous. Yeah. That she's not a sort of an intellectual. She's she's had years not of education. Not like him. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, so much of his sort of self-conception is of himself as sort of like a thought leader. He's always been somebody who wanted to be more outspoken than his mother was, who takes policy stances on issues very early. And he's always thought of himself as like doing very innovative philanthropy. And he wants to talk about, you know, big global issues like overpopulation, even though like that leads to some really gross areas eventually. Did you and see so that he... Dana and I both made the same face when you said that? <laughs> yeah. Just like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Just early stage kombucha face, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really thinks of himself, He again, because he doesn't understand how privileged he is, he doesn't understand all the factors that play into why people treat him the way that they do, he thinks that he's this, like, intellectual. And so <laughs> there's this really interesting moment on one of their first royal visits when they're in Wales, and 
they go and they do the sort of shaking hands thing and they do the line and she's on one side and he's on the other thing. And then he goes and he gives like an hour long speech about like the social issues facing Britain. And he works on the speech for days and he thinks that it's going to be like a real sort of coming out moment. I'm going to promote all these interesting ideas. And it's nowhere in the papers. Nobody gives a shit. And all mm-hmm. of the coverage the next day is, what is Diana wearing? What did Diana say to people in Wales? Diana made like a three or four minute long speech. What did she say? And his sort of ideas, what he considers these really innovative ideas, are just completely ignored in favor of her quote unquote frivolous nonsense, like what Which she's wearing. Which is her fault, obviously. With, of course, she exactly. works at all the newspapers and writes all these pieces and yes. she gets the pictures of Spider-Man. I mean, I also, I'm like, when I hear hour-long speech, I'm like, of course Charles doesn't realize that nobody wants an hour-long speech on anything and that the beauty of a three to four minute speech that probably is what he considers frivolous is that people can follow it. I yes. mean, the Gettysburg Address is like two minutes. Yeah. Right? Famously. <laughs> and what was Lincoln wearing? We talk about that a lot, too. And he was a pretty good guy. You know, it's also kind of interesting because, Michael, you brought up, like, what actually is the power of the royal family. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, like, in Charles' defense, whether or not he's a smart person, he's not like a politics professor at Oxford. He has no <laughs> special expertise in this. Their real power is doing what Diana was really yes. good at, which was mm-hmm. bringing attention to things. Yes. Mm-hmm. And like connecting with people and, you know, even the thing he, he always considered it very frivolous, the way that she would, you know, go to homeless shelters and talk to homeless people and sort of connect with them on that a makes person him to person seem level. like a cartoon villain. <laughs> yes. Well, this is the thing is because it's it's not sort of linked up to policy. It's not linked up to sort of broader social change. If you really want to solve homelessness, you don't need to visit homeless shelters. You need to sort of change the policy and change the funding and get private sector investment, blah, blah, blah. And what she understood is that like that's not really her job. Like mm-hmm. what she does when she goes to a homeless shelter is she is actually bringing attention to the issue of homelessness. And he never actually understood it, that you can actually do policy in this, like, backdoor way by just deciding which issues to bring attention to. Mm-hmm. I mean, the tragedy is they could have made, a, in theory, a really good team I know. doing that. If he, if he wasn't threatened by her and yeah. could harness and work with her power. Dana, I'm curious about the parallels you see to Marie Antoinette, because this is yeah. something that I always think about when we're talking about Diana, which is, like, here's someone who you know, grew up in this world, but not in exactly this world, and who grew up, you know, riding horses. I guess Charles rode a lot of horses growing up, but who who wasn't expected to be important, basically, and then married someone who was almost defined by social awkwardness and just could never fit in somehow because she was too good at what no one wanted to admit her job was. Mm. Yeah, I find the parallels really eerie, especially Mm. because, like, from all the records, Marie Antoinette was really good about poverty and, like, poor people right. on the ground level. She, quote unquote, I use the word adopted because that's the words that they used at the time, like, adopted orphans, which meant, like, paid for their funding. But mm-hmm. specific people, like, she didn't enact big policy changes about, like, the the poverty structure in France. But, like, literally, if she was in her carriage on the side of the road and she saw a child on the side of the road, she stopped her carriage and it was like, I'm going to pay for your funding for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. which sort of is like the the Diana approach, which is like, do this on the on the yeah. micro level, not the macro level. Have a soft it's... heart, be in the world. Yeah. And yeah. the husband is like, no, we can fix everything. And it's like, can you, though? Yeah. <laughs> but that's just I mean, I don't 
blame Marie Antoinette for doing anything wrong because it's sort of like what you described. Like that was just all she was born and knew yeah. and cared about. Like you can't, the last thing a fish can describe is water. Right. And it's the unfortunate mm. timing of like people being racist to Austrians and, and people mm. hating the monarchy at that time where it's like, I think if people fundamentally, if the temperature of England was hating the monarchy at the time, people would not have been short of finding reasons to hate Diana. Yeah. There's also the thing, I mean, they were in this weird place where sort of different people understood Charles and Diana's marriage as different levels of arranged. Hmm. So Hmm. if they could have just agreed on the fact, look, we're not a love match, we're never going to be in love, but we could actually make a pretty powerful and impactful royal couple together. And so let's just do our duties and Diana will be on the front end shaking hands and Charles will be on the back end like – bilking rich people for money to fund policy initiatives, fine. They could have easily done that, but that would require both of them to be honest about what the marriage was, Mm. that it wasn't a love marriage. And it seems like he has too much of an ego to ever want to be the -the behind-the-scenes person. Exactly. Mm. And so he wanted – one of the really foundational things, and it's very easy to forget, is that before Diana came along, Charles kind of was the Diana, that there's this famous trip – to Australia before he starts dating her, where he goes and he shakes hands and he does these events and thousands of people come out. He was seen Mm. as sort of the young, authentic, likable one, which on the scale of sort of everyone else in the royal family, he absolutely was. He was very charismatic compared to, you know, Prince Philip, for God's sake. But then, (laughs) of course, once Diana's around, it's like you've, you've upgraded like from a Honda to like a sort a Ferrari. of Ferrari. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so he all of a sudden And it's he like was kids, a, do you want to take the Honda out again? And they're like, well <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah. Then she just all of a sudden, she she broke the curve. Right. Mm. And so he had this sort of glimpse of himself as the sort of the likable one, the normal one, the face of the new royal family. And then he's just completely buried under all of the coverage of Diana. And so he, again, if he was able to be honest about this, like what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, this all could have worked out. But neither one of them were able to admit what was really going on. And, you know, she still had this myth in her head that it was a love match, right? Like she she thought it was a fairy tale romance and she kept trying to get back to that. And he always thought of it as a little bit more wrapped up in duty than she did. And so the just the different expectations of her and him and his miserable family were really what made it just completely unworkable. Hmm. Uh, do you uh, do you think the public at the time viewed it more like a fairy tale? It seems like the the merchandising at the time was sort yeah. of following that narrative, <laughs> like Sarah? plates and stuff. Uh, well, Mike, I'm actually curious. Like, do you know how much money this union generated just in terms of you know memorabilia and tourism and stuff? Ooh, there's probably like a PhD written about that. Yeah, did you come across figures when you were researching? No, because it's so hard to do the direct versus indirect, right? Right. Because one of the arguments against getting rid of the royal family is always that it would affect tourism. So some percentage of tourism is generated by like visiting the Buckingham Palace and like going to see all the royal sites, et cetera. And so people would And bothering the guards, right? Everyone wants to bother a guard. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And so some percentage of sort of visits to Britain would have been arranged around their wedding and it would mm-hmm. have spiked slightly in the months afterwards. Like there's all these sort of very difficult to measure effects of this, but it would be in the sort of probably in the billions eventually. I mean, the the amount right. of stuff that you could buy with their faces on it. I mean, people have been sending us like, yeah. like my mom and her cupboard has – 
you know, this like dollhouse that was like an official royal family thing or like towels and plates. Like Paper the amount dolls. of just merch was nuts. Yeah. 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 And, and also I feel as if they were considered important for the morale of the country, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Like what, like who will we look up to? Who is a positive figure? Like we're having a bad time economically. Um, like we need this, you guys. Like yeah. I feel like that's kind of the, I don't like just from what we've talked about in the series, I feel like that was a feeling that was present. I'm also now wondering, cause we just recorded an episode on John DeLorean who had to negotiate with Margaret Thatcher, um, at one point in his career because he was manufacturing in Belfast. I was like, did he ever, you know, maybe meet the meet Charles and Diana? Mm. Seems possible. Not that um, I saw I bet it. Peter Morgan's yeah. going to figure it out if he did. I feel like yeah. that would show up in a, in a DeLorean deep <laughs> yeah. dive more yeah, than yeah, in yeah. a Charles and Diana deep dive because they met everybody. But yeah, yeah and I, I mean, it's funny. I was just watching Muriel's Wedding which has a scene where the main character who's obsessed with getting married and with weddings is working in a video store and she is watching and specifically watching and then rewinding and rewatching Princess Diana approaching in her carriage and getting out and the dress being unveiled, this gigantic yeah. dress. Mm-hmm. And I remember Mikey describing like, it's just her little Diana and her little dad in her little <laughs> carriage with her giant dress. <laughs> <laughs> with like 27 feet of train. Yeah. yeah. Like packed in there. Like when you order <laughs> command hooks from Amazon and they're like, we yeah. thought you needed 75,000 peanuts um, <laughs> to keep these command hooks nice and safe. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I do feel like just having that resonant image of a bride, like I just... I understood her to be iconic before I understood anything else about her. So I guess, I don't know, my sense is that, like, no matter what your more nuanced attitude toward the whole situation, like, I think the general consensus was, like, these people are not going anywhere. Like, it is, even if I don't like them, it is unimaginable that they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. It's actually very interesting to think about the ways in which even as she critiqued the royal family and in a lot of ways revealed the flaws of the royal Mm. family, Princess Diana, I think, was also very important for promoting the idea of the royal family. Mm. You know, for more than a decade there after their wedding, she was extremely popular and there was a sense of like this is part of our national character, that we have this dollhouse with these pageant-ish characters that are going around the world and meeting with high-level people and they're promoting landmine stuff at the UN. I mean, this does actually affect public morale. Mm. And a lot of it, like there's there's sort of possibly not true stories of, you know, Australia thinking of trying to leave the Commonwealth. And then there's a visit by Charles and Diana and they're like, eh, maybe the royal family Never isn't so mind. bad. She's very likable. And so these kinds of things do actually matter for sort of how do we think about this institution? And so it's interesting in that, you know, she was so critical of the royal family and the royal family treated her terribly. But as a symbol of the royal family, we finally had a likable symbol that like people were like, eh, maybe we can wait a couple more decades before we get rid of this thing. Yeah, that was a a really, I think, fun episode of of The Crown. If you watch the the most recent season with the, God, I'm going to get this wrong and I apologize in advance, whether the the prime minister or the president of Australia, Mm -hmm. uh, Prime Minister. Prime Minister, thank you. Uh, 
was, uh, you know, garnering public support for leaving the Commonwealth. But people like Diana Mm -hmm. so much. He's like, well, I can't have this conversation now. Yeah. I mean, I think that they were playing that up a little bit on the ground. And like that episode is like factually, like there's massive factual errors in that episode. But like it is saying something about it's easier to sort of swallow the royal family when the main face of it is genuinely likable and seems like somebody who's, you know, down to earth and like she is visiting homeless shelters and doing stuff on AIDS, et cetera. She also looks like a princess. I feel like yes. that poofy dress, that like shoulder dress and the pr- mm-hmm. literal princess skirt mm-hmm. and the getting out of a carriage even. Oh, that, yeah. That like articulated in my conception the archetype of what a princess is for a long time. Oh, yeah. She oh, yeah. nailed it. Yeah. I think it's really important that people need beautiful things to look at and people want to see pageants and we want to see, mm. you know, beautiful people wearing beautiful clothes. And we will just, you know, we will go to great lengths to have that in our lives. And I think that if we recognize that that's a human need, we would obtain it in ways that are less weird. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash noble. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So now moving a little bit further in the story, I'm interested in when the marriage dissolved, which seemed sort of inevitable based on their (laughs) personalities, as you mentioned, Michael. How did the public react? Who was the one that people blamed at the time? I mean, this was 
It depends. I mean, there were there were parts of the British establishment that blamed her. Mm. That you know, the minute she did the infamous Panorama interview, she spoke to this journalist Andrew Morton for a sort of unauthorized biography about her, and she pretended that he didn't interview her for years when he actually did. So all the information was true. The establishment was like, oh my god, it's so cringy, right? She's talking about eating disorders. She's talking about suicide attempts. You know, this is not done by high-level royal people, how dare she? But then most of the public was like, hey, she's a person. Like, this is actually really relatable. And she's in, like, a shitty marriage with, like, this kind of trash dude. And that sounds like my life, too. And so the sort of the people who, quote-unquote, matter really blamed her for it and were just mortified at the fact that she was putting all this stuff into the public realm. But the subjects, like, people in Britain really liked her after this and, like, hated Charles for years after this. Mm-hmm. I read somewhere, and I think this is correct, that for a little while uh, before Prince Charles married Camilla, you know, in the recent last few decades, he hired like a very famous expensive publicist to try to mm-hmm. revamp both of their public images. And so the way that he reintroduced Camilla to the public was a very, very controlled, systemic mm-hmm. way. Interesting. Yeah. That, like, uh, like, they made a few appearances not as an official couple. That, mm. You know, like, it was incredibly controlled how they reintroduced Camilla to not be the other woman at a point yeah. where they're like, hopefully people kind of forgot about Diana a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then I just feel like the crown came out and they had to set their Instagrams uh, to private. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were like, like, hey, wait a minute. I knew I remembered yeah. you from somewhere. Yeah. They were really <laughs> trying to sneak back in there. So uh, just one brief aside, what do you make of Camilla, both of you? The, oh, the I like classic Camilla. Other woman. Yeah. I, the pictures of her when she's younger, she looks like this like hot, sporty, you know, posh lady. And I'm like, well, and then she married someone else. So it just like wasn't quite to be. But then, of course, she and Prince Charles, like, I mean, how soon did they start having an affair into the Diana relationship, Mike? Uh, it depends on who you ask, but okay. it's either like four years or like two years. Okay. So like between two and four years. So like not, you know, this is a young marriage um, that is already sustaining, you know, some some, some heavy winter weather, I guess. I don't know, mm-hmm. in the form of Camilla. Uh, but it's just clear that they were a love match with each other. And I remember we talked about, you know, the Squiggy Gate tape where Charles is on the phone with Camilla. And I am a staunch defender of Charles against, you know, this idea that it is somehow embarrassing to say that you wish you could turn into a tiny man who lives in the vagina of the woman you love. Like, I think that's beautiful. Um, I I will posit that (laughs) there are intimate texts and emails and phone calls between every couple that would be humiliating if they made the light of day. So if there aren't humiliating texts or like little or phone conversations or just nicknames or sexual concepts between you, then like, maybe you're, maybe you could be communicating more. I don't know. (laughs) I also think, I mean, we did a dramatic table read of the infamous tampon tapes. That was was disturbing for some people. (laughs) Yes, extremely, including my boyfriend. Uh, (laughs) And what what really comes out from those, of course, everybody focuses on the tampon jokes, whatever, but it's like a 45 minute long transcript Mm -hmm. and it's a portrait of 
like a very functional relationship. And it's really the only functional romantic relationship that he ever had in his life. And, you know, Camilla's mm-hmm. like, hey, what's your speech about tomorrow? Tell me a little bit about it. You know, the last speech you gave was really good. Can't wait to see the transcript of this one. Just basic, like, supporting your husband in his endeavors and asking him about his ideas. And and that's what it is to love someone, to be genuinely interested in their stupid yeah. speech that I'm sure is very long. And But like, it's like you have to care about someone a lot to want to read the transcript of their speech on like yes. the Welsh economy. Yeah. Yes. And like Princess Diana was not someone who was really interested in that aspect of his life. And they, they were, you know, even as he sort of tried to spoon feed her and force feed her these these pseudo-intellectual ideas, she saw that as a vessel for, like, really nasty behavior from him. And so she never really engaged with him on that level. She never gave him praise about, like, hey, you did a really good job at your speech the other day. I read it. Like, that was not an aspect of their relationship. And so in those tapes, like, the tampon thing is kind of an inside joke, like a cute inside joke. And that's a hallmark of functioning relationships when you're generating inside jokes with each other and Mm -hmm. you sort of riff on the same concept with each other. And it's not clear that he was ever getting that from Diana. It was always this very formal thing. He could never really be himself around her. She could never be herself. It just never matched. And so those tapes are like really a portrait of a couple clicking with each other. And it's kind of nice. I mean, once again, I'm reminded of Marie Antoinette or just sort of royal French royal family protocol generally, because one of my favorite things about Versailles and Louis bucked this trend, but it was like a salaried position to be a royal mistress. And like there was money you know, budgeted for that. And it was like, okay, new fiscal year for the royal mistress. And everyone agreed that, like, someone had to do that. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like this is one of those relationships where, like, everyone at the outset was like, okay, here are the ground rules. We're going to discreetly have affairs. I don't want to see this. You don't want to see that. And then, you know, just, like, if it, like, their marriage is, is a career, you know? I feel like you can't, Mm-hmm. If your if your marriage to someone is your vocation, then I it just seems like it's really hard for that to be also your primary romantic relationship. Like you have yeah. to be really strong going in. I think. And you know that's another really interesting parallel between Diana. Not a parallel, a a com- point of comparison between uh, Marie Antoinette and Diana, because historically the purpose, not the purpose, but an incidental purpose of mm-hmm. a royal mistress was to deflect fire away from mm. the queen. It's I didn't the, realize that. That's so great. It's sort of a Madonna whore complex, which is is uh, troubling, but but was really effective, where people could see uh, the the queen as as maternal and and um, you mm-hmm. know perfect and flawless, holy and quiet, and then they could fulfill their needs of like gossip and like petty little like mm. incidental talk about uh, the the royal mistress. And as you mentioned, Louis the Sixteenth bucked the trend. He didn't have a royal mistress, so all of that like petty gossip energy just funneled only to Marie Antoinette, where in another mm. case it would have been, you know, distributed probably between two or three other women. Because yeah. as a society, we just culturally love talking about and gossiping about and diminishing You just women. have to have at least one. The, the What we've learned is that you have to have at least one woman in the public sector to just be like a spittoon for for yeah. public enmity. Yeah. And then you can protect, you know, and then another woman can quietly, you know, not be loathed. But you do have to have at least one for people to hate out there somewhere, like a exactly. rodeo clown. There's also an interesting thing with Camilla because it's one of the only times that we have this weird sort of switching of who mm. is the wife and who is the yeah. mistress. Hmm. Because if you look at them aesthetically, 
Camilla should have been his wife and Diana should have been his mistress. It's one right? of those She's, American hustle things where you're like, he's he's married to who and he's having an affair with which one? What? Yes. So it's this weird, <laughs> it just, it sort of rejiggered the way that the tabloids sort of dealt with this, that Diana ended up being the vessel for a lot of the gossip. And Camilla was just sort of like this empty presence. There wasn't much to project on her. But and, I think the benefit of Camilla, though, is people could hate her, and then make yeah. Diana seem more saintly by comparison. Mm. Yes, exactly. And also, I mean, Camilla didn't like Diana. Camilla treated her terribly. Like, I don't I don't want to sort of be the, the you're wrong about Camilla necessarily. I think mm-hmm. all three of these people acted terribly to each other and mm-hmm. did not like each other in ways that manifested in the way extremely people do immature behavior. In horrible yeah. marriages. Yeah. Yeah. One of the um, – one of the academic articles that I read that I didn't get to bring up on the show was called, I believe, The Croning of Camilla. Oh. And it talked about how in the press, whenever they would talk about Camilla, they would always unfavorably compare her to Diana. You know, like her beak-like nose and her wrinkled eyes. And it was something that every time they brought her up, they had to mention that she was like less attractive than Diana, mm-hmm. right? And so it it did make her seem somewhat tragic to me. That, you know, she's with this guy in this, like, pretty functional relationship, and yet whenever she shows up in the media, they have to say, like, oh, she's ugly. And anyway, <laughs> he seems to really like her, and they're in this great like, – blah, 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 right? It just It's just interesting that, like, that was something that they had to do. And I feel like there's something weird about just constantly being compared to somebody like Diana that I think would be really hard. Mm-hmm. Especially – and this is now a transition – especially when you die at your peak – and never, oh. have, and never have to age in public or, mm-hmm. you know, you can you can only always be remembered favorably. Yeah. Diana's uh, very tragic death then catapulted her from global celebrity to uh, icon. What even is higher than icon? Yeah. Symbol. Symbol. Goddess, I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do you think there are so many conspiracy theories around her death? Because the royal family killed her using MI6 in the tunnel. <laughs> Were we not clear on did, our show? Did, did the royal family kill her? I thought that was clear. Yeah. <laughs> Do they kill beloved private citizens? <laughs> I think my theory on this, like all conspiracy theories, is it's just such an unsatisfying end yeah. to this sort of larger-than-life figure. And then how does she die? She dies in a drunk driving accident. Mm. It's like the most pedestrian, quotidian way that somebody can die. And that just... And she wasn't wearing her seatbelt. It's like an ad that should play for high school students. Yeah. I know. And it's just like, there's just something so kind of unresonant about the way that she died. It seems wrong, right? If you were making a movie about it, she would like kill herself or, you know, she would disappear off the face of the earth due to the pain or something that sort of seems like it fits with the rest of her life because the rest of her life was so sort of mythical and then she mm. dies in this way that like tens of thousands of people die every year. And it's like, oh, okay. And it's like well, the most I guess common way you can. And when we yeah. talked about in the episode, like where the idea was like, it's isn't it weird that she died in a car accident, you know, with, with this timing, et cetera, or something. And it's like, it's not weird because people die in car accidents constantly in this yeah. country, like constantly. And inevitably it's going to happen to some famous people. Yeah, Exactly. It's and, like statistically the least and, and weird way to die. And constantly in yes. all the other countries too, by the way, in the world. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 
Michael, you yeah. Sorry. Oh, I was going to make a uh, bring up a point that you made on the your podcast, which is so brilliant that I find myself echoing it uh, almost constantly. That we think that significant events have to have significant causes. Hmm. Hmm. I think you brought that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the idea that like because her death had such a massive effect on everyone, Mm -hmm. it seems like the cause also should be massive. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you look at the actual factors behind it. And there's basically three main factors that the the driver of the car was drunk. He was speeding. He was going 110 miles an hour when he went into the tunnel. And Diana and Dodie were not wearing their seatbelts. Mm-hmm. And if any one of those things was different, there's a chance that they wouldn't have crashed or they would have lived. But you take all three of those factors and put them together. And it's just like a very normal kind of crash. And then then isn't it like the the tunnel itself, like it just had this little like dip and this little curve yeah. in it. Yeah. That were just like the tunnel a trap, basically, basically. Yeah. It was this perfect thing where the tunnel slopes downward and curves at the same time. And yeah. so the driver was going so fast that the car almost jumped off of the road. And by the time the driver was able to sort of see that he was going out of control and turn the wheel they had sort of settled back down onto the road and he overcorrected. Yeah. And then he just rams into this pole. Which is how these catastrophic plane crashes sometimes happen too. We had this, yeah. you know, it was the Dreamliners or whatever, right? The, what was it? We had a series of high profile plane crashes in the past few years. And basically I think what was happening was that pilots were overcorrecting because the software was malfunctioning and telling mm-hmm. them that they were in a nosedive yeah. Um, and they were overcorrecting for that and just, you know, yeah, overcorrection errors. Like it just, yeah. it's so, and it's, I mean, don't you think that it's like really upsetting to realize that someone is not just mortal, but like that mortal? Yeah. They're just sort of in the blink of an eye. Yeah. And, just, and like a few, yeah. like a few bad decisions happen. And this guy was like, I always thought he was like a little drunk, like he'd had some wine or something, but he'd had like several scotches or something. Yeah. He was three times the legal limit. Right. He was like super drunk and he hadn't eaten all day and he was taking medication that amplified the effect of the alcohol. I mean, he was very impaired. Yeah. And you get into the details of this in your podcast. Was anyone more interested in like the specifics? I think that's a wonderful source. You also go into the fact that, like, he wasn't an actual driver for this Yeah, he wasn't car. trained. He was, like, the head of security. He wasn't the driver. And the main thing to me is most of the conspiracy theories are around this tunnel that, you know, they flashed a light in the tunnel that blinded him. And then he swerved the wheel or there was a motorcyclist in the tunnel, whatever. And the main thing to know is that there was no reason to expect that they would be in that tunnel. If you look mm-hmm. at the hotel where they were leaving and the apartment that they were going to, there is a straight line from one place to another, and it's not the tunnel that they went in. But the traffic was so bad on the Champs-Élysées that they had to take a different route. But Paris is like a winding mess of hundreds of streets, right? So so even if you knew that they weren't going to take the Champs-Élysées, there's 40, 50 different routes they could have taken to mm-hmm. Dodi's apartment. So Even if you were sort of the royal family and you were trying to murder Princess Diana, there's no way you would know that they would have taken that route. There's no way you could ever have planned for this. And there's just – there's also people have talked about how it's just really bad to try to kill somebody in a car because you can't expect what the driver is going to do. Like there's no reason Mm -hmm. to think that flashing a light in somebody's eyes would result in a fatal car accident. It would just be like, oh, it's annoying. And then it's, okay, can you can you go into the basic conspiracy theories? Because, like, there's the light flashing, and then there's, like, 
general, the royal family did it. General, the paparazzi mm-hmm. did it. And then I'm sure a small slice of, like, the Clintons did it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hillary Clinton murdered <laughs> yeah. Princess Diana, as we all know. I uh, Piggybacking on that, I just have one sort of additional question is, why would the royal family want to kill her at this mm. point? The main reason that, I mean, it's actually a very sad story that one of the main purveyors of the conspiracies is Dodi Fayed's father, Mm. who has like a very sort of justified beef with the royal family and with the British Mm -hmm. establishment. His claim has always been that they're super Islamophobic, which like they are. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like as a general principle, like, yes, these are not people who are like super into diversity in the country. And so he has felt sort of shut out of the British establishment, which he was. And so he has built up Even though theory. he owns Herod's, right? Yeah, like even he, though, I he, mean, by, If he were white, like, he probably would be, like, a big badger-baiting, you know, yeah, big wig I mean, in the country. It's wrapped up in, like, wealth stuff and, like, old stuff that there were deals that he didn't get. And there was, mm-hmm. like, they, they never approved his visa, which, like, genuinely is bullshit that Mm. they just kind of left it at the back of the pile for decades. So he has legitimate grievances, but he builds up this idea that they didn't want her marrying a Muslim and that she may have been pregnant with Dodi Al-Fayed's baby. And so there was going to be this like royal baby who was the sort of half brother of the future king of England who was going to be a Muslim and they couldn't handle that and they freaked out. Uh But at the time, there was no actual evidence that Diana was going to marry Dodi. There was no evidence whatsoever that she was pregnant. The only evidence that she was pregnant was somebody took a photo of her in a bathing suit and she like has a tummy. Oh, no. And it's like she is a middle-aged yeah. woman. Like <laughs> she has like a little bit of a tummy in this photo and they're like, oh, she's pregnant. And it's like that's that's it? That's your evidence that she's pregnant? It's like one paparazzi right. photo? Read every oh, single issue of Star Magazine. Yeah. <laughs> every celebrity is pregnant at every yeah. given moment. I also like how – you could speculate that that's evidence of someone like growing more comfortable with their body yes. and successfully, you know, being on the road to recovery from an eating disorder. Exactly. But it's not, they're like, oh, she's pregnant. Yeah. So the sort of the, that's like the er theory of this, the royal family wanted her out of the picture, but it just doesn't make any sense. And it, it especially doesn't make sense given that they killed her on that day because Dodi Fayed had started telling people that he was going to ask her to marry him, but the first person he told was that morning. Mm, so if the mm. royal family was really afraid that she was going to marry Dodi Al-Fayed, they somehow would have put together this mastermind plan in like six hours? Yeah, those fuckers move slow. <laughs> and then, They can't you know, even plan a fox hunt in less than a month, I'm sure. And they're bad at, at public relate. They're bad at things. They're they really feel very bad that. at things. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, you know, there's a million, I mean, I read two books about it. Like, you can go into all of the specifics. There's, like, a guy who was driving a Fiat that night who, like, might have been a paparazzi. But it's, like, they don't add up to anything. Because it's just, like, well, what's the actual theory that somehow they knew that he was going to take this route? They faked the blood alcohol content of the driver. Mm -hmm. They convinced Diana not to wear a seatbelt. Like, if you try to put it in chronological order what the theory actually requires, like, you just can't make it plausible. It's like a lot of the OJ truther theories. You're like, individually, these elements could have happened maybe, but it's very – it's, like, impossible for me to believe in a world where all of them happen in sequence and where people actually manage to plan it behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. In, like, six hours, right? Yes. They're swapping out vials of blood. There's all kinds of telepathic communication happening in these scenarios. People, like, just sort of unspeakingly, uncommunicatingly all 
carry out plans with maximum efficiency and discretion in a way mm-hmm. that never happens yeah, anywhere exactly. else. <laughs> and you also have to imagine that if they have the power, if the royal family had the power to orchestrate this massive and immediate conspiracy coup, they would also have the power just to like have made Charles more likable. Like if they had the <laughs> yes. in, if they had the infrastructure to orchestrate this elaborate yes. fake death, use mm-hmm. that manpower. They should have just used that manpower to like make people like Charles a little bit more, to make him seem yeah. like less of like a little bit of a wet blanket. Or right. like they could have blocked the panorama interview. Yeah. Like they could have stopped the publication of this tell-all biography. Like there's many smaller steps they could have yeah, taken. Yeah, they actually to only have power the to murder. To make her only <laughs> murder. To make her look like less likable. Also, like yes, that the, the, I mean, her death is is a human tragedy, obviously, mm-hmm. but on a larger scale, it made people love Diana more than they ever oh, yeah. had. That's the thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Which they surely would have foreseen. If they can arrange, like, a seven-hour murder conspiracy in two languages, mm-hmm. they probably could have foreseen that this would make her more popular eventually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, with Diana having been dead for, oh, God, over two decades, where do you think her legacy sort of stands now, just in your professional and private opinions? I mean, I feel like the crown has left people with a chance to feel like they have a firsthand experience of kind of the compressed storyline of her her marriage and life and divorce and death. Mm. Um, and it seems as if, you know, that's giving people a new access point with which to love her. Like, I, I think that like Marie Antoinette or any number of, of figures who have endured, especially after an untimely passing, I think there is... She was able to interact with the press or with the forms of media that recorded her life in a way that I think gave people at the time and continues to give them a feeling like they have some real connection with who she was. Like, I think Mm. what made her great at what she did was that, you know, despite all the performance, despite the great pain of her life a lot of the time, I feel like she did. I hate to use this word because it's just been it's so gross now in the age of influencer culture, but like she kind of maybe was one of the people who helped invent authenticity mm, as yeah. we know it today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sarah, do you think, I, I, I'm trying to come up with the most articulate way to ask this. People tend to fundamentally hate women in power <laughs> for a variety of way, reasons. Do mm-hmm. you think that part of the reason Diana was so beloved was because she was vulnerable and and tragic. Do you think there was there was a, a victim aspect to why she was able to to remain so beloved? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I would say yes. And I feel like my first memory of thinking critically about Diana was listening to the version of Candle in the Wind that was rewritten in tribute to her, and then realizing soon after that that was a rewritten version of a song originally about Marilyn Monroe. And I was like, that's kind of odd. I just think that's odd <laughs> to have some other girl's song <laughs> rewritten for you. Um, I, I I don't know why I'm bothered by that. I just am. I know it's hard to write a new song, but um, it just feel. But it does feel like it expresses this thing of like. I mean, it's like Mike and I just recorded on Miss America, and I keep thinking of that because a lot of the themes are the same. Like she must be a virgin. She must be, you know, this age and 
and this, you know, all these other qualifiers. And we were talking about how it feels like, it feels to me like when you are anointed and crowned Miss America, like you were the human carrier of the spirit of Miss America. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, you show up the next year and give the crown away and then your little husk um, crumbles and blows away in the wind and falls into the beach on Atlantic City and is washed away by the surf. And then you become a mermaid. It's very Um, poetic. Yeah, I think that's what happens. And that's why you never see them again. But just this, it feels like that song being kind of rewritten and reused fits with this idea that we have a society that just consumes women and that we somehow apologize for it by selectively mourning some of them. Mm. Um, and that Marilyn was one who was consumed by the fame machine and Princess Diana became, you know, another. And it was just she was consumed by more, you know, the royal family and British tabloids than by the Hollywood treadmill or whatever it was. And her presence is one that I think carries us potentially into really meaningful experiences of thoughtfulness and empathy. But she's also very accessible because she is kind of poured into the mold that we are most conditioned to find sympathetic and lovable, partly because, you know, there's there's nothing less intimidating <laughs> than a woman who's already dead. Like, there's a reason why so many of our beloved young women in society are murder victims. You know, they're, they're not very uppity, are they? <laughs> and it's also like the media then loves this idea of like, oh, we all killed her. Yes. Oh my God. The, the 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 mea culpa, the the self flagellation of the yeah. of the mea culpa, I think, is an instinct that everyone kind of likes oh to indulge God. in. Let's not blame the very specific tabloids and yeah. very specific editors who were like buying photos of her that were taken at night and clearly invasive. Like, no, no, no. Let's not blame the people who actually made decisions. Let's blame everyone who. Ever it was you, a Mabel. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> Mabel Jenkins. <laughs> Let's blame literally everybody instead of like the eight people who actually made her life terrible. No, it was all mm-hmm. of us. It was society. <laughs> I think my big thing with Diana is. You know, you can talk about the authenticity in this sort of clinical way, but, you know, one of the things we mentioned on the show was that diagnoses of bulimia, Mm -hmm. I believe, quadrupled in Britain in the early 1990s once she started talking about this because people were finally getting diagnosed. People were finally talking about it. And I think Mm -hmm. to me, as somebody who lived in Europe for 11 years, I lived in Britain, there's a huge problem with sort of official aristocratic European society that does not talk about stuff. Mm. And this was one of the things that Diana really struggled with, that she would go to these dinner parties and you're not allowed to talk about anything real. You're not allowed to reveal anything of yourself. You just make this excruciating superficial small talk for hours and hours and it never ends. And I think one of the things that she really did was break that habit and point out that like this isn't serving anybody. Like who is it helping for us not to talk about what we're struggling with? Why Mm. would we do this to ourselves? Why do we raise our kids this way, right? Mm. And so I just think that it's a model that the the solution to the things that Diana struggled with in her life is not to push them under the rug. It's to bring them out into the light and talk about how you're not a broken person for struggling with an eating disorder. You're not a broken person for like still dealing with the trauma of your weird cold upbringing and your terrible sandwiches. Like you're allowed to talk (laughs) about this stuff. And so – I just think if there's a model, it's really like bringing things into the light and talking about yourself as a whole person, that 
you are beautiful and you wear these outfits and everything. Like you can talk about the sparkly stuff, but you can also talk about the dark stuff. And that doesn't take away. Mm. And one thing doesn't take away from the other. Mm -hmm. That's beautifully said. And I Mm -hmm. also want to go on the record finally and say, like, I reject the dichotomy that people who are interested in uh, like fashion and and, uh, clothes are automatically frivolous. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. Like, I think her... Her fashion is is interesting and and worth as worth talking about as Prince Charles's non expertise on Welsh economic oh, yeah. policy. Straight men are interested in sports. Yeah, there is yeah. nothing more frivolous than like knowing sports statistics. Like you're not going to talk shit on somebody who knows the names of a couple designers mm-hmm. if you can tell me what like Cal Ripken hit in 1984 or whatever. Sorry, it's all frivolous. You don't get to talk shit on other people's frivolous stuff. Also, I got to say, I don't know how men look in England. Maybe they look great. Who knows? In America, men look awful. And so many of them (laughs) could just learn how to dress better, just a little bit, just five to 10% better. Because like quality menswear is a beautiful thing. Like men can dress gorgeously. Mm -hmm. Like watch Robert De Niro in Casino if you want my point to be probably proved to you. So not I, the movie I thought you were going to bring up. As an example yeah, of not that. the best dressed men. I might. Think. I think. Listen, Robert De Niro has more costume changes in that movie than Sharon Stone, and I think he's probably accessible on the scale of masculinity. But he wears like beautiful, loud suits. But the point is that like men could look so much better and have so much of the passive power that comes from looking good. But they're just terrified of it. And it's hilarious to me because you could just, you know, it's uh, it's right there in front of you, but you're afraid of taking it. And I argue if you're rich, it's pretty easy to be hot. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. just hire a couple people. Yeah. You're like, tell me, give me a skincare routine. Dress me. Give me a capsule wardrobe. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah. on that note, before we go, I do want to ask uh, each of you what your favorite iconic Diana fashion moment is. Ooh. Do you have a favorite uh, Diana look that comes to mind? I know what Sarah's going to say. Do you? I think yes. you do. Yeah. Okay. So my favorite look is that picture you showed me, Mike, where she's wearing mom jeans <laughs> and a T-shirt. Yeah, I knew you know. <laughs> <laughs> the Des Moines wine mom. Yeah. When was that? F- I think I said Duluth. But either way, when was that photo taken? <laughs> uh, that was right after the divorce. Uh-huh. So I believe 94. Yeah. And the, and of course, these weren't mom jeans at the time. These were very fashionable jeans of the kind mm-hmm. that, you know, Meg Ryan was wearing in 1994. But she's wearing like high cut, you know, just like, but it is, it's like a very like Meg Ryan kind of a look. It's like, these are my jeans. I am a mom. And then like, a, a you know, and I'm sure these were all made by designers. And then a t-shirt with stars on it. And mm-hmm. she just looks like she could be the the former princess of Wales. Or she could be, like, the prettiest mom in Duluth, Minnesota, like, picking up her kids from gymnastics. If I want to Google, Google this picture, what do you think I – what's the best, most effective search? <laughs> uh, mom jeans. I think, honestly, Princess Diana mom jeans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Diana mom jeans. Star t-shirt. And she's, like, walking downstairs. It's a white yeah. t-shirt. Yeah. 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 Totally. She looks like she could be at the Mall of America. Yes. Yeah. I love it. We mean it. that in the best possible way. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, 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 as some, look, I wish I was in Minnesota right now. Yeah. I yeah. am a huge fan of Duluth Wine Moms. And she yeah. looks <laughs> better than any of us could trying to be a Duluth Wine Mom. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And just that she's like that. I mean, I I mean, I know that mom jeans has acquired a pejorative connotation. I think that's unfair. And I feel as if like this is a picture of her being a mom, which is an yeah. opportunity she was really deprived of for a lot of her marriage. Mm-hmm. That is a good segue. I'm I'm superseding you, Michael, and doing mine now. A Ooh. look that I love because it feels very 2020 or like 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, also sort of a mom jean, like a, like a light wash jean, boots, brown boots, a crew neck sweatshirt, a blazer mm-hmm. and a hat. Oh, I know the photo. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah, like yeah. a balloon on mm-hmm. her shirt. Mm-hmm. I think she's yeah. also with William. The British Lung Foundation. Oh, yeah. There we go. British Lung mm-hmm. Foundation. Yeah. She just looks very sporty and like chic, yeah. but casual in a way that I yeah. wish I could emulate. And it feels very modern. Uh, I think even like. Uh, I was going to say Hilaria, but um, not Hilaria Baldwin. <laughs> um, who's Justin Bieber's wife? Haley Haley Bieber. Haley Bieber. Yeah. I think Haley Bieber recreated totally. some of these looks for like a fashion spread. Oh, that's great. And Diana it looks really killed good. a white sweatshirt. She's got a lot of good also, sweatshirt Also, she's looks. wearing a white sweatshirt under a blazer with a baseball cap on. Like this is like Billy Crystal at a baseball game almost. Mm-hmm. Like, but she, yeah, and it's like, you know, yeah, she like she knew how to put items together didn't she she was also really good in the look of like a crew neck sweatshirt with bike shorts yes Mm -hmm. she looked really good doing that uh i think this is such a cliche but mine would be the infamous revenge dress oh and please describe the context of the revenge dress to those who might be unfamiliar this is why i think it's so important because i don't know that much about fashion i can't say much about the actual dress itself but it's such a metaphor for the way that women can use fashion as power so The entire thing was Prince Charles was on this sort of PR kick. He was doing a documentary for the BBC that was supposed to like humanize him and make him seem cool and down to earth and authentic. And I have seen it and it does not do any of those (laughs) things. But he was convinced that it would. And so Diana had gotten this invitation to go to the Serpentine Gallery and she had turned it down, whatever, I'm busy that night. She finds out this BBC documentary is airing and she's like, "Mm, on second thought, I am going to (laughs) go. And she shows up in this crackerjack knockout black dress with like shoulders out and this big necklace and she just looks like a billion bucks. Mm -hmm. And she did this deliberately to knock Prince Charles off the front pages. She wanted to take the nation's attention away from him and put it on her. And it worked. All of the front pages the next day are like, knock out Diana. And Prince Charles is on like page 17, just like his dumb Welsh speech. Prince Charles said some words. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, I can still do this. And I just think it's like, it's such a moment of her understanding herself as a symbol in ways that she Mm -hmm. didn't at the beginning of the marriage, in Mm. ways that she didn't at the beginning of her career. She's like, this is the way that I can communicate with the public. This is the way that I can get my message across. Sometimes it's literally just me showing up to something in a dress. That is enough. And so to me, it's just such a confidence moment. Her totally understanding and using the power that people ascribed to her, gave to her. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's so rare to see a woman do that. And sort of, you know, women throughout her life, she was criticized for being frivolous. Like, oh, she's always shopping and she's doing all this fashion stuff. And it's like, that's literally her job. Like, <laughs> it's absurd to criticize her for understanding her job. Like, she How dare has she to not wear... achieve peace in the Falklands? 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> and she's going to these events where she has to change into different formal clothes three or four times a day. So that requires a lot of shopping. Like, you just have to have a lot of dresses for that. Also, that's the thing that people were writing about her and talking about her a lot. In interviews, no one was asking her her take on the Falklands because she's not an expert on the Falklands. Yes. (laughs) She's like just this random woman, basically. Yeah. Like, shows up at things. It's fine. Yeah. (laughs) So this was a, a rare moment of a woman in public life actually using that kind of scrutiny to send a message. And it's just like a nice little power moment. I Mm. love that. I think that is a perfect place to end. Sarah, Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you on the internet if they're inclined to hear more of your wisdom and perspective? Uh, Our podcast is on all of your major podcast apps. It's called You're Wrong About. And you can find Sarah also on Why Our Dads, which is also on your telephone. And you can find Mike also on Maintenance Phase. You know? Yeah. And so so you've talked about Dr. Oz recently. I've talked about The Dark Knight recently. Mm -hmm. We have a few other interests sometimes. Yes. Perfect. And I think both dads and uh, the public obsession with weight and bodies – also feeds into the Diana issue. So this is all a, a oh, yeah. topical She had bubble. a dad and she was on diets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, have a have a, a good one. How do people sign off of these things? I'm usually talking no alone to myself in a closet. Fare thee well, Dana. <laughs> I know. Bless you. God bless Princess Diana. Yeah. Bless God bless us, everyone. Everyone. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz and produced by Aaron Mankey, Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.